Mac Power Users, Episode 186, MPU Live for April 5th, 2014. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd alongside David Sparks. Hey, David. Katie Floyd, I'm so excited. We have a chat room during this show. We have a chat room. We actually have live music, so you can actually hear our theme music before we started talking. Uh, we we have finally got the technology together. We've got this rocking and setting up, and uh, I'm feeling pretty excited about it all. Yeah. You know, I've always wanted to do these live shows, but the the content shows we do are very focused. It's very hard for me to like watch the chat room and do all this stuff at once when we're trying to do a content show. So these these live shows are to me going to be like dessert. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and uh, boy, when when we asked people for um, to write in with their tips and tricks and and answer questions on the live show, uh, they have just responded in droves. So we didn't have to do a whole lot of work for the show. This was great. We've got a ton of content. Uh, from Mac Power users, listeners. And, and we want to ask you for a little more because now that we've got the hang of these live shows, we want to start bringing in listeners into the live show. And so remember, we do these live shows on the first Saturday of the month. So the next one that we are going to do is going to be Saturday, May 3rd, mark your calendar. And we do these at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find them on the 5 by 5 calendar at 5by5.tv slash live, and that will convert that into your time zone if if one of those time zones that I gave you didn't work. Uh, but we'd like to bring some listeners in and do some you know mini workflow shows like we've done on episode 100 and 150. So uh, if you've got something cool that you want to show off and you're, you're available at that time and you want to walk us through a, a particular way that you do something on your Mac or iOS device that, that you think is unique – uh, you know, send us an email, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com and tell us about it. Uh, and we'll try to get you in scheduled on, onto one of these shows. Uh, but you do have to be available uh, live for when we do this. And uh, so send us an email and we'll talk about that. And you uh, can also send in uh, just a recorded bit and you're going to hear a bunch of them in this show. So we're hearing from a lot of our smart listeners commenting on that. And we've got, some, we just got kind of a grab bag of, of feedback over the last month. I, I'm really happy with this new format because I always felt like we were cheating feedback because the content shows just take too much time. And by the time we get to the end, everybody's tired and uh, the listeners are tired and we're tired and they, they don't want to hear feedback by then. So now we can put it all at this, this monthly show and get some good stuff in. Yeah, and, and boy, is it a grab bag this week. So the funny thing about these shows is they're generating their own feedback, and, and I like that too. And last time on MPU Live, we had this discussion about, is it possible to uh, act on mail? Because we talked about how you can take mail rules, and, and you can do things with mail, and you can file mail, and organize mail, and do things like that. But is there some way that you can act on mail based on attachment. So you can take an attachment that comes into your mail and do something with the attachment. And we threw out some possible solutions. We said, well, SaneBox will take your attachments and put them into Dropbox. And then once you get them into Dropbox, you can use Hazel to do all, all kinds of interesting things. Yeah. And we talked about, well, maybe Hazel could watch your mail downloads folder and do something. And then we talked about, well, you know, there's got to be a way to Apple script this because mail's got Apple script support. And, and we talked about a, a few, you know, kind of, big picture ideas for how this would work, but we didn't really come up with a solution. And um, yeah, guess what? Our listeners came up with solutions. So, with an S, solutions. Lots of solutions. Yeah. Well, one of the first ones was to use Hazel. And uh, listener Chris in Germany figured this out. 
Uh, it's the location of the downloads for mail is in a very obscure file name. Uh, users slash username. So a mine it would be be Sparky, but yours might be Katie or Katie Floyd. If I made your Mac, it would be definitely be Katie Floyd. I'm pretty and sure then, it's Katie Floyd. And then slash library slash containers slash com dot apple dot com slash data slash library slash mail downloads. How's that for obscure? Yeah. And if you didn't get links to all of that, um, Chris has done a really good job of of outlining this all out. And I've put a link to that in the show notes. I've actually shared that email where he diagrammed this all out with us via Evernote, which is pretty cool. And I've shared a public link to that, and I'm putting that in the show notes. So, But go ahead. Yeah. Keep, keep walking us through it. Okay. So once you get that done, um, then he goes to, um, to create a Hazel rule that moves all that stuff. So he goes into that folder, and then he runs a, a rule on the folder content. With me so far? Yes. And then what he does is he creates a rule to um, apply something to it. So, like, for instance, he's got one with mail tickets. I'm sorry, online tickets. And this is pretty tricky. I like this Hazel rule. So, first, he looks for uh, the contents of the the file. And if it in- includes the word online ticket. And uh, since he's German, he's got some German words in here relating to tickets, which I can't attempt to say. <laughs> and then he does a date matching um content so he looks in and pulls the date out and then once he takes that he renames the attachment with the date match and then the the name ticket in it then he moves it to a folder that he's created for tickets he sorts it into a subfolder by date matching and if you didn't know about this in hazel uh, i'm going to come back to that just a minute Uh, then he adds a tag uh, which is tickets and mavericks tag and then he also adds a comment where he puts the word farcarte Farcarte. F-A-H-R-K-A-R-T-E. That which mean clearly tickets? means something in German. That means, I bet it means tickets. But anyway, okay. then he puts uh, the date match token in that, you know, and we've talked about date matching on the show before, but on the Hazel rule sort into subfolder, I'm not sure a lot of people realize that's there because I had a bunch of people ask me that at Macworld. They said, well, how do you just, how do you uh, get it into, let's say I want to put them in monthly folders. Do you have to create a new Hazel rule every month to make that work? Uh, in Hazel, there is a command called sort into subfolder and you can put it in there with a pattern and you can make the pattern just the year token or the year and the month or the year and the date. And when you do that, if the token doesn't exist, it goes to, uh, it creates one. So like, for instance, if I say year by, you know, 2014 month hyphen zero four, if it doesn't have one of those folders in there that says it already, and I've got something that matches that month, it will create a new subfolder. Uh, an example of this that I saw recently used that I thought was very clever um, was my uh, sister-in-law. We were trying to sort, she had a big, big pile of JPEG files. I mean, years worth of pictures. And so I took that and ran a Hazel rule by date created. And we auto sorted into subfolders and it just like crammed through there and sorted all those pictures by year and month. Make sense? Yes. And we actually have another tip that talks about this and and gives some other examples a little later in the show. Okay. So where, where do we go from there once he's got this done? He's got the thing saved. He's found it on, you know, buried in his Mac. Um, he had a couple notes there. Be sure to set an override or trash of duplicate in the options because otherwise there will always be a new file with the individual ending numbers if you re-download the attachment. 
I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. It's a good tip. And uh, what else do we have on this one, Katie Floyd? Well, I mean, so that's kind of big picture. That's one way to do it with Hazel. So the, the big picture of this is you take Hazel, you point it to that user library containers, com.apple.mail slash data slash library slash mail downloads folder. And then you set up a mail rule to do what you want with it. Yes. All right. And, and we'll have a link. I know that's probably hard to follow in audio. And we will have a link in the show notes that kind of walks through that or that does walk through that process. So Scott and Keith both wrote in with another solution. And we talked about how this is probably also possible with Apple script and mail, especially because of sandboxing will apparently when you do this with Apple script will not allow you to save attachments outside of the downloads folder. So um, there, of course you can get around this with magic or of Hazel, but you could probably get around it with magic too, but uh, the magic of Hazel will let you get around this because you can save it to the downloads folder and then move it wherever you want. But, but that, just stop for one minute there. That, isn't that crazy that you can Apple script your computer, but you can't tell it where to save a mail attachment? No, it's sandboxing. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, Scott and Keith both um, got the idea for the script, and, and they got most of the script from an Apple um, discussions forum, and I'll put the link for that discussions forum in the show notes. Um, and then they've got a pretty detailed script that they talked about. And the script is very lengthy. And so I'm going to put a link to that script again in the show notes. Now, this script has got to be placed in the library application scripts folder, com.apple.mail scripts folder. So you can take that. But what this script is going to do is it's going to run on Apple Mail attachments, save them to the downloads folder that you specify, the downloads folder, and then you can take it from Hazel from there. And then move them to where, do whatever you want with these attachments and move them to wherever you, you specified. Yeah. And you could always just get a Sanebox subscription. Yeah. And, and what Sanebox will allow you to do with that is Sanebox just saves your, your attachments to a service like Dropbox or Google Drive or something like that. And then that makes it a lot easier to use Hazel or another tool. And once you've got them out of the, the mail grip, you can do a lot with them. You know, on Apple Script, since we're talking about Apple Script, we just got back from Macworld. And I had, uh, I had a deep throat experience, Katie. Okay. I, um, I was walking down the hallway in Macworld, and somebody said, you have to come, you know, out to the parking lot. I have to talk to you. Somebody, you know, there's somebody that wants to talk to you. So I got out there. Um, I noticed as I was walking out there that someone had spray painted all of the security cameras in Moscone between me and the parking lot black. You know, they like spray painted the lens so there was no footage. And uh, I got to a place. Uh, there was a a, a a Chinese like uh, paper rice paper wall erected so I could not see the person. But he was backlit. So I just saw his shadow against the paper and he had one of those things on his voice that, that distorts his voice. He, he sounded like really gravelly. I'm assuming it was a man cause it was not capable to tell, but anyway, so he said, look, I'm on the inside of Apple and you told me, or you said recently on a show that maybe we shouldn't bother with Apple script cause we're not sure if it has a future. He says, Apple script has a big future at Apple and it's just fine. So if you want to tell people to learn Apple script, tell them to go ahead and learn Apple script. Very cool. And then like a week later, a week later, iWork got an update. And iWork now has big Apple script support in it. In fact, have you looked at that, the new Apple script support in iWork? I think it's better than it was even before the big shakeup in iWork. 
it's it's significant. Well, I don't know if it's better than before, but it's significantly better than it, it was a few days ago. But yes. Well, yeah, they 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 gutted it when they first when they first did the new version. But but Apple Script support in iWork never was really that great. And I started looking at the new library or the new dictionary, and I think there's some stuff in there that wasn't there before. So it looks to me like they've kind of doubled down on Apple Script. I'm not sure they're up to the level of Microsoft Office, which actually has pretty good Apple Script support. But uh, either way, Ben Waldy, who's been a guest on our show, wrote an article about that in Macworld. I'm going to put it in the show notes uh, so you can kind of follow up with Apple Script. And so where last month I said maybe uh, Apple Script isn't worth learning, uh, we're getting word and confirmation that maybe it is. I think Apple Script's going to be around for a little while. I wouldn't worry too much about it. And yeah. I, I might have seen your secret source walking down the hallway, just saying. I, I don't know what he or she looked like because it was very secret. And I was afraid if I peeked around the wall that he or she may just kill me. Possible. Maybe it was you, Katie Floyd. No, I didn't see a bat with it. It couldn't have been you. You you didn't see a bat with in the shadow? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Speaking speaking of mail, um, while we're on that topic, we got another question about mail. And uh, this is a question from Anne Marie. So let's hear what she has to say. Hi, Katie. Hi, Dave. Uh, This is Anna Marie. And I'm calling with a question that's puzzled me for many years. And I don't know why nobody else is bothered by this. So maybe... I'm not doing something or not understanding something. So emails come in with attachments, and I open up the attachments and I store them in places where I need them to be to be able to work on them. But I want to keep them attached in my email. I want them in my email so that I have a record of who sent it to me, when, and what the conversation was. But I don't really want to have the two files on my computer all the time. So how do I manage that? Is there a way to clean things up so that I, I don't know. Anyway, I hope you understand the question, and I hope there's an easy answer. Thank you for so much, many things you have taught me, and so many ways that I am a better Mac user because of you guys. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the big problem with email attachments. You don't want to over overload your email library with all these attachments but sometimes it's really convenient just to go search out a name in your in your mail application and find attachments that person sent how do you deal with it well i've got to get on my soapbox for a minute first before i answer your question okay and get up there i i want to because i i want to tell people that email was never meant as a method for sending large files back and forth I know that it is incredibly convenient for sending files back and forth, but you can't expect to send, you know, somebody 20 pictures via email. And if you do, I promise them, I promise you, you're not sending them at very high quality. I mean, maybe a single picture here and there. Sure. You can't send someone a 300 page PDF document via email. I mean, email was just not designed for this. And so once you start getting up above, you know, five megabytes or so, it becomes questionable as to whether or not you're going to be able to receive or send or much less whether the other person is going to be able to receive that email attachment. So I much prefer using services like Dropbox or Transporter or one of those other types of services to send and receive any email attachment of, of size. I know people do it, but I just wanted to get up on my, my soapbox for a minute. In fact, we talked about in the last episode, because I mentioned it uh, in my Macworld session, um, about a, a plugin for Apple Mail that I use called Cargo Lifter, 
that will automatically upload any attachment that I try to send more than five megabytes. And it will then send a link in the email um, to that attachment saying, hey, you can download this from my Dropbox. And, and here's a link to that. But let me get down off my Dropbox or my, my Dropbox, my soapbox for that. Well, while you're in your soapbox, are you still putting an image in your signature at your day job? Um, no. Yay. Well, I never, I never did. They sent out a little email mandate saying everybody's signature should like that look like this, and I said, "Okay, delete." You're learning, Katie Floyd. You're learning. I mean, what what are they going to do? I'm just going to feign ignorance and be like, "I don't know how to do that." Sorry, I don't know how to work my email program. Sometimes the best way to fight the man is to ignore the man. I don't, I don't know how that works. I, I put it in there, and I don't know why you don't see it. Sorry. Yeah, I don't understand computers. Um, yeah, I'm with you. So when you're sending emails, like whenever I find people sending me like multiple emails, cause they've got a bunch of pictures they want to send me and, and they send me like eight emails each with like two pictures attached, you know, it, it, for a lot of, you know, people who are not really techie, they don't know any better and you just deal with it. But when I, you know, from, from us techs that are uh, techie guys who are on the show or listening to the show, we need to set the the world straight. We've all got Dropbox accounts. It makes it so easy or transport or whatever you're using uh it's definitely nice but we haven't really answered Anna Marie's question. Oh, I I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. Yeah, well she what she she wants um she wants the ability to save it offsite and I can say that in, in my case anything that's material in an email I always save somewhere else. And I look at the stuff that is attached to emails as disposable. And at some point it may get disposed. Um with the rising, you know, we went through this for a long time, but then when we had these great spinning hard drives that were cheap and really large, none of us ever thought about email attachments anymore because storage was never an issue. But now we have the SSDs and people are starting to run out of space on their Macs and uh, email attachments is a good place to look, especially if you have thousands and thousands of emails with each one has a 10 megabyte attachment that can add up. Um, there is a way to, to delete that. Um, you can uh, in mail go to message slash remove attachments. Um, uh, but you know, I, I like to, it sounds to me like what Anna Marie's doing is, is keeping a separate copy somewhere else. And I would just treat that one as the gospel copy and not worry about it attached to mail. Yeah. And a lot of this, um, there's no clear answer because a lot of it depends on how your mail client is set up and how the, the provider that you use handles mail. So for example, all of my mail is up on IMAP. So all of my mail is stored on the server. So if somebody sends me a mail message that has, let's just say, three megabytes worth of photos attached, those three megabytes worth of photos are going to get downloaded to my computer. And in my mail preferences, the way that I have them set up in Apple Mail, and there are a couple of different ways to tweak this, I tell Apple Mail to save a copy of mail mail messages that I receive so that I can view them offline. So that if my computer is not attached to the internet – um, that I'll be able to view the attachments and to actually view those messages when I'm not online. And it's very convenient because I don't want to have to be connected in order to see a message that somebody sent me last week. It's becoming less of an issue now that we're pretty much always connected, but it, it's still an issue, and that's why I choose to do that. Now, you can change a setting in Apple Mail, and you can tell it to only keep you connected to the server. Most servers have that support for that feature. Um, and as David said, you can you can also change some settings so that you can manually remove attachments. And I do this sometimes. I can, I'll go into my archive folder in Apple Mail and I'll sort by size, and I'll see that I've got you know messages in there from 2008 that that have eight, nine, ten megabytes worth of attachments to them. 
and I'll go ahead and, and remove those attachments and to try to save space in my, my email directory. But you can also, in the preferences, remove unedited attachments when mail quits. And I think what that's doing is just removing the cached copy of the attachment to mail quit. So I understand why you want to keep them in mail to, you know, kind of have a record that the attachment was sent, but I would kind of treat those as um, disposable and they'll probably be there for at least the short term and probably the midterm, but long term, they're probably not going to be there. Marina in the chat room had a good idea. She said that um, maybe she should tag the saved file. So if you get a file from David and you tag it, you know, Sparky, and then you can say, well, what have I received from him? The tag will be attached to the file you saved, and then you could delete the attachment. Yeah. And and I think the other issue is she wants to know who sent her that file and where and when. And some of that information may be available in the metadata of the file itself. If you click on the file and and click Get Info, now obviously as you edit and change the file, that's going to get changed. Um, you should be able to, if you save copies of those messages, um, when you go back and search in mail, even if you don't actually have the attachment, you should be able to see that there was an attachment. Another option is the next time you get a Mac, just realize you're one of those people that likes to save a lot of copies of stuff. Make sure you get a little bigger hard drive so it's not an issue for you. I, I don't have a problem with Apple Mail bogging down. That used to be a thing like four or five years ago. But maybe because I, you know, my Mac is only a year and a half old, or maybe it's... Um, I don't know why, but I, I don't, ha- and I have a pretty big library, and it's full of attachments. So scrolls like butter. Yeah, no, really, no problems. Yeah. Hey, let's move on. We got a lot of stuff to cover, though. Yeah, um, generating feedback from the feedback show. Uh, we had a couple of people talk, uh, ask questions about using iPads and iOS devices in the educational environment, and we gave some recommendations for apps, but. Neither of us being in the educational environment right now, we, we kind of had to give our best guesses about what we thought would be appropriate. And thankfully, uh, Zach called in and said, hey, I'm a student and I've got some thoughts on this. So let's hear what he has to say. Hi, David and Katie. I just wanted to provide some feedback on your sort of education segment of your live episode this past week. Two apps that I really find important as a law student in education are Documents by Riaddle or Riedel and PDF Expert by the same developer. Um, And just recently, PDF Expert integrates with Documents. So Documents is like a file system, essentially. You could... It reads just about every file um, you can possibly throw at it and allows you to manage and organize your Dropbox. And PDF Expert now integrates within the same app um, as Documents. So you click on on a PDF in Documents, and it opens up a PDF Expert window inside Documents. So it's sort of help solve some of the file management problems. And PDF Expert, in my opinion, is the the best PDF annotator on the iPad. So those two apps are, are invaluable to me um, in, in education, and I appreciate your time and love the show. Thanks. You know, it's crazy, Katie, how many great app developers are coming out of the Ukraine for iOS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, when you think about it, it's a relatively small country. And, you know, Riedel's there, MacPaw. I, I can think of several people making apps for iOS right now that are, uh, well, I don't know, it's a combination of creativity and engineering or whatever. But uh, we've got some really great stuff coming from the Ukraine for uh, all and, of us iOS users. And aren't the guys who do uh, Daisy Disk over there, too? I, I'm not sure if they're in the Ukraine, but I, I know they're in that general area. 
Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's Riedel, and they make some great, great apps. Um, I like a lot of their stuff, and we saw them at Macworld this past week. So always a always a pleasure to get a hold of them. Wouldn't it be fun to go back to school now? Yeah. Uh, I, well, maybe not to go back, but maybe to be in school right now. I well, I was talking to my daughter, my seventeen year old. She's starting college in the fall, and she's already starting because she's a nerd like her dad. She's already starting to think, well, what you know, what am I going to use in school? And I think notability and an iPad Mini. And maybe a keyboard in her backpack are going to be her daily drivers as she's going to class. And I'm like, wow, I would love that stuff back in law school or college or whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, I do want to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor for this episode. And that is SaneBox. SaneBox is back. So head over to SaneBox.com slash MPU. Uh, You can find a special deal there. You'll save $10 on any one of their plans. And what is SaneBox? A SaneBox is simply great email filtering. So there are a couple of ways that SaneBox works. And you can use them all or you can use just a few that whatever fit your needs. So SaneBox takes a look at your mailboxes, and it will work with many different types of providers, whether you use Gmail, whether you use Apple Mail, whether you use Exchange. In fact, I use SaneBox with all three of those. Uh, Pick your provider, plug your information into SaneBox, and what it will do is it's really smart. It will analyze your email, it will look at your contact information, um, and it will try to figure out what of that email do you get is really important. Because uh, how much of that, you know, it will look at the kind of the signal to noise ratio. How much of that email is really important? And it will keep in your inbox only those emails that it thinks really matters and only those emails that you probably need to see now. And then everything else goes into the same later folder. It's not gone. It hasn't done anything with it. It just means like, hey, when you get a sec, you can take a look at this email and you can filter through it. And don't worry if if SaneBox makes a mistake, all you got to do to fix it is take something from your inbox, move it over to the Sane Later folder, take something from your Sane Later folder, move it into the inbox, and it will get smarter as you use it. Um, another great feature of SaneBox is they have this aptly named Sane Black Hole. So if you're getting spam from somebody or if you got signed up for a mailing list and you're a little weary about clicking the unsubscribe button or worse yet, there's no unsubscribe button, take the email, move it into Sane Black Hole, and you will never ever hear from that sender again. Uh, One of my favorite features of SaneBox that I actually used while we were at Macworld is the snooze feature. And so you can create custom mailboxes in addition to the Sane later Sane black hole mailboxes. So you can create custom mailboxes. So for example, for my work-related email, I have a custom SaneBox called tomorrow, and then I have a custom SaneBox called next week. So if I get email that comes in after hours and I don't really want to deal with it, but I don't want it sitting in my inbox, I'll move it to tomorrow and boom, it'll pop up in my inbox at, I think, 7 a.m., 8 a.m. the next day. Uh, If I get something coming in over the weekend and that's already happened this weekend and I'm not going to deal with it till I get back into the office on Monday, I move it into the same next week folder and boom, it gets back into my office, uh, comes back into my inbox Monday at 7 a.m. I did that all week at Macworld for the emails that weren't super critical and I kept a nice tidy inbox, dealt with what I needed to, and then everything came back on Monday. And and doesn't it feel good when you just kind of put it off to Monday? Because you know you're not going to think about it anyway. Yeah. Uh, And and lastly, there's the sane reminders feature. So if you've sent somebody an email, but you want to make sure that they get back to you and you want to be reminded to follow up, you can CC or BCC, let's just say one week at sane.com. And if whoever you sent the email to doesn't reply, you'll get that email back in your inbox in a week reminding you to follow up. But you can pick any time frame you want. You could say April 15th at SaneBox.com, and, and it will follow up. 
But SaneBox does more than filtering. We talked about sending attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services. It is absolutely brilliant. Uh, they have a bunch of different pricing plans. They start as low as about $4 a month. That You do get a 14-day free trial, no credit card information required. And again, if you sign up at SaneBox.com slash MPU, you can save $10 off of any plan. So give them a try. Um, and the SaneBox guys wanted to let you know that uh, we did a two-episode run for them a mm, couple of months ago, uh, late last year. And 66% of the people who tried SaneBox from Mac Power users ended up subscribing. Um, so you'll probably love them too. So check them out, SaneBox.com. I swear by them and uh, thank them for sponsoring Mac Power users. Hey, you know, usually in marketing, it's like a great thing if you get like 2 or 3% sign up, right? Or 10%. They could not believe that 66% of our people signed up for it. I'm like, well, that's because the people listening to the show have a problem. They need help with this stuff. And this, this thing solves the problem. So I, I was pretty proud of our listeners to know that everybody's getting in the same box. Yeah. Anyway, I guess we should move on Katie Floyd. Yeah. I like this. We keep, keep switching topics. Don't like topics. Stay tuned. There'll be another one in just a couple of minutes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, we got a lot of feedback um, and that's a nice word for it, uh, although Tom was nice, um, about our travel-related show because we kind of omitted a very important travel feature. Yeah, I don't know how I did this. I had it written down. I don't know how I didn't get into the show. Let's just hear Tom. Yeah, here we go. David and Katie, hope everything is well with you. On the last show, Geeking Out with Travel, I was really surprised that you guys didn't mention TripIt. Last year, I traveled over 130,000 miles for business, and TripIt was the one thing that kept me centered the whole time I was on the road. I, uh, I really like TripIt. I think it's a great service. It's free. Uh, the key points for me on TripIt are that you can email the confirmation from your airline provider or your hotel provider, and TripIt just interprets it and puts it right in line with your itinerary. The other nice thing is, David, you were talking about sending a copy of your itinerary to friends or family when you're going on the road. You know, TripIt makes that really easy. Number one, you can print a PDF of your full itinerary and then email that out. Or you can add them as a traveler, and then they can log into TripIt and actually see you in real time. The other thing with TripIt is it does integrate with third-party apps. Katie, you had mentioned that the older version of FlightTrack integrates with TripIt. Actually, the new version of FlightTrack Pro, which is a paid app, it's a couple dollars, that does integrate with TripIt really nicely. And in fact, most of the time, TripIt and FlightTrack Pro give me flight updates faster than the airlines do. Hope you guys are well, love the show, and keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks. I had trip it written down. I don't you know what I You keep saying that. I, I just blew it. That. I blew it. But it is a great service. If you've never used it before, you sign up for an account, and just like Tom explained, you forward your emails when you get the uh, flight reservation or your hotel, and you, and you send it, and they... They have little, little. Um, I think they're like Keebler elves that go in and fix it for you. And they set it all up. It's great. Yeah. What else do we um, say except uh, we also- to beat our breasts and say, <laughs> and shame. <laughs> Travel show with no yeah. trip it. Okay. Anyway, geeks, go check out trip it. We also heard from Sorry Melanie though, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Melanie, Melanie had a, a big suggestion, a list of uh, apps that we missed. So here we go, Melanie. This is Melanie from Florida with an audio feedback on your Travel Geek podcast. Y'all missed a big chunk of iOS travel apps that some of us have found very useful. 
Some things that I like that I've used for, for example, searching for planes and hotels, kayak and also hip muck. And kayak helped me in January when snow shut down the Atlanta airport and I had to get from Florida to Kansas City for a seminar that I was presenting at. Southwest canceled when I got to the get, <clears throat> got to the uh, ch- counter, and within five minutes I logged on to Kayak and rerouted myself on a different airline through Charlotte and made my trip. Also, like as far as keeping track of the details of a trip, I like both Tripcase and Tripit, and I'm not sure about Tripcase, but Tripit will put it on your calendar for. Miscellaneous stuff, I like Seat Guru, although I know David doesn't need it. And Stay Connect is an interesting app. It will turn your phone into the remote control for the hotel's TV, so you don't have to touch their nasty remote control. And finally, for keeping track of expenses, particularly on business trips when you've got to put in for your expense account, the app Jet Set Expense will keep track of everything, and then at the end of your trip, you can email the report to yourself and have all your figures real handy, not only airline, hotel, cab fare, tips, parking, whatever, really handy. Enjoyed the podcast and look forward to your recap of Macworld when you get back. Thanks, and I also emailed this info to feedback at Mac Power users, uh, so there's probably some duplication. Anyway, keep keep it up. What a great comment! Thanks, Melanie. That's a lot of good information. Yeah, I use um I use Flight Track Flight Tracker quite a bit, and um I I really like Flight Track. the The newer version initially didn't have TripIt support, but just understanding from Tom's email or Tom's audio comment a few minutes ago that they have added that back in. So I've actually. Um, kept with the older version, but I'm not going to go ahead and update to the newer version since it's a lot prettier. Did she? I don't think did she mention Hipmunk in that? She did. Bit? She did mention. Oh, Hipmunk, yeah. yeah. So I I've been booking flights a lot with Hipmunk. I I like that service, but I think they're all kind of the same. Kayak or Hipmunk. The um uh one thing she said about you know my seat thing. Can I tell you that I got a ton of feedback on my obsession with picking the same seat on every airplane. And like 90% of it said that I'm insane and 10% completely validated me. So I'm not really sure what that means, but it was kind of fun reading the emails. <laughs> um, Seat Guru was built into um, Flight Tracker Pro. I'm not sure if it's because I'm, I'm using the older version. I'm not sure if it's in there in the newer version. But yeah, Seat Guru was uh, built into Flight Tracker Pro. So that was always fun to be able to. We actually got upgraded to the, um, we, we had an option to upgrade to exit row seats when we were coming back from Macworld. And um, I was able to log in and see, okay, well, these are exit rows, so we've got a ton of leg room, but because uh, there were actually exit rows that didn't have a seat in front of them, so we got double leg room. Um, but I was like, well, but they don't recline, and the seats are a little narrower, and you know, we were able to make a decision of is that something that we wanted to do? And the answer was yes, of course it is. So we did that. Always take leg room. Yes, always, always. always. Um, any other? Uh, we got we got one more comment on on travel that I that I want to talk about but anything else about travel apps that you think we missed no except uh trip it is really great and i still can't believe we missed that did i tell you i wrote it down yeah you keep saying okay. that but nobody yeah. seems to believe you yeah whatever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right next one let's hear from david i think this is david we'll see 
dear Max Barkey and Katie Floyd. Please, please, please stop worrying about iPad Bluetooth keyboard battery life. Does your iPhone battery last more than a day? Does your iPad battery last more than two days? Of course not. My Logitech keyboard for my iPad easily lasts a month, sometimes two months, without needing to recharge. And you can even set a recurring task in your handy, dandy OmniFocus application to remind you to recharge it monthly. I won't even start talking about Max's unwillingness to use the AT&T website to change his data plan. So angry. Hugs, Dave. <laughs> He, he says his name was Dave, but I think it might have been Alex. I love that. I love that. Um, the You know, I guess the thing is, he's talking about his Logitech keyboard. And I think there's a Logitech iPad keyboard. And if that's the one he's talking about, I actually bought one of these uh, uh, because it was really cheap on Amazon one day. And I have a thing about keyboards. And it's a great keyboard, and one of the best. First of all, it runs on a couple AA batteries. So if you throw an extra pair of batteries in your bag, you you are never going to be without batteries. It feels good. The keyboard feels good, and it has an on and off switch, sliding switch on it, which is to me, I don't know why people don't do that. I mean, it just you you flip the switch and it's off or it's on. And uh, whenever we get these keyboards that don't have switches on them is when you have this fear that you're going to put it in your bag and somehow it's going to turn itself on and it's going to end up locking your iPad or you're going to need it and the batteries are dead. In fact, you had some experiences with that, you were saying. Yeah, and this is why I finally made the switch to the Logitech, uh, I think it was K760, which is the solar keyboard is because I swore I was never going to have another keyboard with batteries again. Sorry, Dave, or Alex, or whoever it is you are. Um, because twice I have gone iPad only on trips, but taken these Bluetooth keyboards that were battery powered. Once it was the Apple Bluetooth keyboard, and another time it was another keyboard. I don't remember which version. And twice, well, I mean, I've taken them more than twice, but on two separate occasions, and they were pretty important times, I have gotten to my trip and my batteries have been dead. And what has happened is that the keyboard has turned themselves on, uh, you know, in my bag, been pressing keys. And I think it was Jason or maybe it was one of the Dans, the Macworld Dans at um, at Macworld was telling me that they had an issue where that happened and their, um, their iPad was locked and their keyboard started um, inputting in numbers. And so it was wrong passcode, wrong passcode, wrong passcode, wrong passcode. And thankfully, he did not have his iPad set to erase after 10 improper passcode attempts because that would have been really, really bad. But it, when he got out you know, to work, the, the iPad was locked because after you repeatedly put in the wrong password, you know, first, after the first three or four times, it gives you like a five-minute delay, then a 15-minute delay, and then it gets progressively longer. And if you continue putting in the wrong password, it will lock it for an hour. And that could be as easy as sticking the keyboard in your bag and having, you know, a pencil press against the number two in your bag. And it would just keep pressing number two. And so I guess the, the moral of the story is it, if you're going to get yourself a, um, a keyboard for your iPad, get one with an on and off switch on it. I mean, make that one of the primary criteria. And there's a bunch of them. The Logitech Solar One has an on and off switch on it. I, they also have the Logitech 811. I think oh, that has an on it. It does. does it have an on and off? It does. I saw, that's the one that I really want, but I didn't buy it because it has batteries or not. I mean, it has a built in battery that you just charge via micro USB. Yeah. But it's a good bit smaller than the K760, which is the solar one. 
yeah. um, because it doesn't have that big solar panel on the top. And it's also got backlit keys. And it's it. I really wanted that keyboard, but I ultimately didn't buy it because of the battery issue. But then I saw one at Macworld this week, and I think I'm going to have to buy it. Okay. Why not, Katie? Go crazy. I know. Go crazy. But it has an on and off switch, so the battery problem shouldn't be a problem for you. Yeah. But I'm like, I, I have a sickness in terms of charging devices. And maybe it's because I used to use electronic devices when they held a charge for 15 minutes on a full charge when they were new. But uh, I am constantly charging my things. I mean, rarely does my iPad get below like 60%. Yeah. I start to get nervous. Yeah, I don't blame you. I've, I've had some issues with my iPhone battery. I think I'm either going to have to restore it or, or see if something's going on with it. But yeah. Hey, uh, let's take a break and talk about our second sponsor today, and that is the guys over at BusyCal. Uh, BusyCal is what I call the professional calendar application for the Mac. It's It goes so far beyond what you can get with calendar. It's it's compatible with all the major services like iCloud, Google. Now it, uh, it is compatible with Exchange. I use it with the Exchange server at my office all the time and no problem. It syncs events. And it syncs them through the standard calendar module in the Mac, so you don't lose anything. You know, you can use it without getting locked into a special application. It's got some great custom views, like the scrolling months and week views. In fact, you can even customize the number of weeks shown per month or the number of days shown per week. Like if you want to stretch it out and say, well, give me 12 days or 14 days or however many days you want in the week, you can just do it. In fact, it was kind of funny at Macworld. I did this big talk about how you can go in the terminal and hack the calendar app to do this, but it's just this massive project. Or you just go in BusyCal and you click a setting and you can change the view. Um, they've got uh, integrated to-do support. Uh, to-dos appear in your calendar on the date they're due and carry forward until completed. They've also got uh, synchronization with the Reminders app on OS X and iOS, so you can do that as well. It's got better alarms. It's got the snooze button that you can actually set the number of minutes, hours, or days it's going to snooze. And that's actually a, a, a feature because the calendar app doesn't do that. Um, they have a non-modal info panel. So when you have an event available, you can actually go do other things on the screen while still editing the event, uh, which they, you know, they just solved all these little problems that we've all had with calendar over the years. Uh, they've got a menu bar icon that if you click up there, it gives you one click access to events. It shows today's weather forecast. In fact, the, the weather forecast integration is really nice. I like to see what I'm going to be doing over the next few days as it's, as we're getting, uh, further towards, uh, spring and summer, we're getting longer days in Southern California, and I want to be able to go home and sit outside, and I want to see what the weather's going to be like if I can do that. Uh, they have smart filters that allow you to uh, filter your your calendar events just like you do uh, songs in iTunes. So you can display set of calendars or show events that show certain conditions, like a text screen or an event type. It's just really great. And, you know, BusyCal's been the guys that have been bringing good calendaring to the Mac for years. And we just did a show on our contacts saying, man, we really wish there was a better contacts app. And guess what? There is. Uh, Busy Contacts has been announced. Amen. It was uh, listed at, at 
uh, Macworld. It was given Best in Show by several publications. It's not out yet, but they're getting ready to start a public beta. So get yourself over to the BusyCal website and sign up for the public beta. And when they start releasing it, you'll be able to get in early. It's got a lot of the great features that we like about BusyCal applied to contacts, like uh, you can uh, do multi-column table view, smart filters. It integrates with the Busy Calendar application, uh, address book sharing. You can tag contacts. So that goofy thing I do in the notes field, uh, you can do that with actual tags now in Busy Contacts. So I'm very excited about this new application. You want to go check that out too. Head over to Busy Cal and uh, you can see both uh, a web page. You've got a preview of Busy Contacts or just check out Busy Cal. You can buy it in the Mac App Store and uh, let them know you heard about it from us. Cool. I love BusyCal. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very excited very, about very this excited new app. about Busy Contacts. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Where are we at? Um, well, we have yet another situation. Um, you know, we, we get questions all the time about, um, you know, various things. You know, people, people write us in with their questions, and sometimes we know the answer, and sometimes we don't. And so we got a question from Walter, and I'll let him ask it in a minute. And I really didn't know the answer. I guess it was one of those situations where I could sit down and figure it out. Um, and then a couple of days later, we got the answer from another Mac Power users listener, just completely unsolicited. So I love it when a plan comes together. So, uh, uh, oops, you know, and I just closed the window that I needed to get to that. So uh, give me just a second and we'll get it back up. And uh, and we'll hear from, from Walter as soon as my screen reconnects. There we go. Here we go. Hey, Katie Floyd and David. I was wondering if you could provide a Hazel rule that will convert a Word document into PDF. I was going to use this in conjunction with Dropbox. Thanks, guys. Great show. So he's got a he's got a situation. He wants to put a Word document into a folder and have it automatically turn into a PDF. Yes. Well, we've talked about some of that. You know, the most basic level to do that is almost manual, where you open it up in Word and you save it as PDF. And I started playing with that a little bit when we first heard about this, in terms of way of automating that. And I went to Automator, and you know, as, as we've talked about in the past. In fact, Ben Waldy, who I mentioned earlier in the show, is the guy who wrote these scripts for for Microsoft. There's all these great Automator scripts attached to the Office Suite, and in Word there is a command to open a Word document and to save a Word document with a, a card there where you can set it to save it as PDF. Um, I played with that thing for like a half hour and I was, it was just not working. I tried to put a delay in between the open and the save and there, there's something going on. I've got a note out to Ben and I just haven't heard back from him yet. Um, but the first thought I had was let's try it with automator because if you had an automator script, you can, if I could get that to work, I could embed that into Hazel and that would solve the whole problem and you wouldn't have to do any crazy programming. But thankfully we had a listener that had a better solution that actually works. Yeah. And it's not audio. So you're going to have to walk us through it. Okay. Uh, this is uh, from Corwin. So he's using a, a modified Apple script. He found at scrubs.me, which we're going to put in the, um, we're going to put in the show notes. But um, so the script opens the relevant file in Word and uses it to convert it to PDF. So what I was trying to do in Automator, it's doing through AppleScript, which apparently is working better than these Automator uh, tools. Um, and this is similar to the way we do the OCR, where you open PDF pin and have it um, run the OCR on the file and then save the file back. So you add OCR. It's doing the same thing. It's just opening the file in Word and then closing it. 
Um, he's attached it to the email. I guess we're going to put it somewhere, Katie, where people can download it. I but have already uploaded it to a public Evernote and shared it in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. So basically it tells Word to activate and then tells the Apple script to delay a second, which is the same thing I was running into. But apparently if you, if you get, um, if you tell it to immediately save as PDF, then it gets an error message because the computer is basically tripping over its own feet. So you have a delay a second. Once you're done, um, the Hazel rule works as follows. So you look for a file with an extension of either .doc or .docx. And when I was troubleshooting that automator script, by the way, I tried both versions of documents, you know, because that's, I believe it's a word 2007 where they switched to the .docx format. That sounds uh, about right. Yeah, but they're both still pretty active, but neither one would work with Automator. But anyway, so you look for a Word document, and it's going to have one of those two extensions. And then once you get it, you run the Apple script. You can embed it right into Hazel, and then you move the uh, then you move the file and and send the original to the trash if you want. And it's, and, it's really not that complicated. No, and it's a so I put both the link kind of explaining that walkthrough as well as the actual Apple script that you can use. There's a link to that in the show notes. And probably next month I'll have an answer why the automator script isn't working because there's no reason you should have to write an Apple script for, for something that simple. Yeah. In um, my opinion, I was also thinking keyboard maestro. You could probably make keyboard maestro do this, but, but this is a lot simpler if you can just Apple script it. Yeah. Simple you can make app. almost anything happen with keyboard maestro at the end of the day. Yeah. If it's in a menu, keyboard maestro can do it. So. Okay, uh, we also heard from Wendy about Hazel. Yeah, um, so this is kind of our, our Hazel tips section. And Wendy kind of expands on the concept that you were trying to explain earlier of, of matching. So let's hear from Wendy. Hi, Mac Power users. I'm Wendy Zine, and I am here to share a Hazel tip with you. As a digital scrapbooker, I'm often purchasing and downloading large scrapbooking kits full of graphics. Each kit usually has between 2 and 10 zip files associated with it. And after hearing you guys rave about Hazel, I downloaded the trial and set it up to automatically unzip my files and move them to my supplies folder. But that got me thinking, what if I could get Hazel to also combine all the related zip files into one enclosing folder? A quick email to Hazel's customer support pointed me in the right direction. Pattern matching. The vast majority of digital kits are named in a similar naming convention, designer name, underscore, kit name, underscore, description of contents. For example, Wendesign Sketchit Actions and Wendesign Sketchit Templates and Wendesign Sketchit Tutorial with an underscore in between each part. And I wanted Hazel to take all the files that were named Wendesign underscore Sketchit regardless of the rest of the file name and combine them into one folder for me. To do that, I set up two Hazel actions. The first simply watches my desktop for zip files. When it finds one, it unarchives it and then moves it to my supplies folder. And the second watches my supplies folder for all of the following conditions. Kind is folder, date added is after date last matched, and name matches a pattern match, which is also known as a custom token. To get that part set up, I clicked in the empty box after the word matches, clicked the word custom, and that brought up a dialog where I could name the token. I called mine designer name underscore kit name, so I knew what it was. Then in the box beneath it, I clicked word, symbols, 
word. And that tells Hazel to look for a pattern where the text, the underscore, and the text all match each other. Then I click Done. And now I need to click Anything to add behind the custom token to tell Hazel that anything else can follow that custom token and still qualify as a match. So I click Done. Then finally, I needed to tell Hazel what to do once it found those matching files. So I set it to do the following to the matched file or folder, sort into subfolder with pattern. Then I clicked in the box and I chose my new custom token, which had been saved for me automatically. So now Hazel will watch my supplies folder, find all the downloads that start with designer name underscore kit name, and place them together in a brand new folder named designer name underscore kit name. It works brilliantly and it is saving me a lot of time sorting all those downloads that I have. Thanks for all you do for us Mac users and I look forward to your show each week. I, I love hearing when people who are not programmers pick up something like Hazel and make something amazing like this. Yeah, and Wendy is, is using this feature in Hazel to do something very specialized to what she wants to do. And you may at first thought, you know, think, ah, I, I don't do that. I don't have that kind of stuff come in and you just brush off this tip. But But let's think about, do you ever repeatedly get in a group of files that is always named the same way? And you always want to do the same types of things with that those files, you know, or maybe they're not named exactly the same way, but you always want to take, you know, let's say that they're accounting files and you, you know, if you're, if your tax preparer or your bookkeeper at the end of every month, um, you know, sends you a whatever account receivables PDF, and then they send you a, um, you know, billing statements PDF, and then they send you, you know, I don't know, pick, pick a whole bunch of things and you want to take those and you want to organize them into different files you just tell Hazel what to look for to pick up the keywords, whether you're looking for billing statements or account receivables or organizing them by month. And it will automatically, you know, just say, Hey, I downloaded this file here. Go, go sort it automatically and go do what you want it to do. Yeah. It's, it's just not that difficult. And when I was talking about um, auto sorting earlier by date, she did something entirely different. She pulls the name out of the file and then auto sorts by the name, which is, I think actually a little, more clever for, especially for what she's doing. Yeah. So that, that is a, and another, the other tip that you could have pulled out of there is the Hazel forums are amazing. Um, Paul Kim is pretty active over there in the Hazel forums and he's very responsive to emails. But if you go into the Hazel forums and you say, Hey, I, this is what I've got and this is what I want to do. You'll usually get responses from people saying, Oh yeah, you can do that. Have you considered using this type of, of, um, of rule or have you considered using this variable or it, it's really amazing what you can get over there. Yeah. Yeah. And I also love how um, we have listeners and we get these emails all the time saying, you know, you kept talking about Hazel. I finally went and tried it. How come I didn't do it two years ago? It's amazing. So if you're one of those people, now's the time, but we have more in Hazel from Todd. Here we go. Here's Todd. Hello, David and Katie Floyd, Todd McCann from the trucker dump podcast here. Hey, I've got a question involving three of your great loves, Chronosync, Backing Up, and of course, Hazel. So here's the deal. As a trucker, I'm only home two to three days each month. And yes, that sucks just as bad as it sounds. So anyway, my off-site backup is pretty much taken care of by leaving my backup drive at home. 
Like a good little nerd, the first thing I do when I get home is transfer all my stuff to my late 2008 MacBook Pro, and then I do a super-duper backup. But because this old, apparently immortal, MacBook has a massive 320 gigabyte spinning drive, I can't keep all my video on board. So what I've done is copied my movies folder onto yet another external drive. The problem I'm having is keeping this file updated with the new videos. Unfortunately, I don't always remember to transfer the new video files to the backup drive. Now, it sounds like Chronosync would do an excellent job of doing a diff and only transferring the new stuff. But here's it where would. I need your help. Now, the $40 for Chronosync sounds like a bargain to me, but when your family CFO and non-techie wife is nicknamed the Evil Overlord, you need to be able <laughs> to make your software budget stretch so you don't wind up suffering needless torment. Todd's in trouble. So that made me start thinking of the cheaper $28 Hazel app, which I've been jonesing for ever since I first heard of it spoken of by you, the MPU crack app pushers. So here's what I'm thinking. Could I have Hazel watch for any new video files and put them in a certain folder? Then I could just manually copy all the contents of that folder onto my backup drive. Granted, I know this won't do a diff the first time like Chronosync will, but I'm thinking maybe I can just use the trial version to get this all started. Sorry, Chronosync. But every time after that, I'm hoping Hazel could recognize any new video file I transferred in from my iPhone, and I could just manually move it over to the backup drive each month. So, am I being a bonehead, or will this actually work? Now, I can see that Chronosync would do this a lot better, but this particular scenario seems to be my only use case for the app. On the other hand, I could think of lots of uses for Hazel. Besides, it is cheaper, so my beating from the evil overlord will be less brutal. And that's always a good thing. Any thoughts on this or other suggestions would be much appreciated. Keep up the great work. I'm really digging the new live format. Thanks, guys. So, so you tip, know, sometimes... tip number one. Can I, can yeah. I offer a tip here? Yeah. Um, do not call your wife the evil overlord on a podcast that, you know, kind of goes out to thousands and thousands of people every week. Just a yeah, you know, little, little thing. I, I was thinking as I was listening to that, I said... You know, I, I we've done a lot on this show, but maybe this is the first time we've created an exhibit for a divorce proceeding. I'm not sure. <laughs> I suspect yeah. I suspect his wife doesn't listen with him. I'm pretty I, sure. Yeah, hope not. And if you do, hi. <laughs> he said it with love. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he did. He, did, he didn't mean it, and just just send him back on the road again. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's an interesting question, though. Uh, he's right. Chronosync is like perfect for that job. But yeah, and, um, and, if, and Chronosync is the better tool. And just to give a plug for for this, I mean, don't get me wrong. Love Hazel. Chronosync is the better tool for this. And just a plug for Chronosync. You buy it once and you're done. I mean, I bought Chronosync years and years and years and years ago. And I don't know if they advertise free updates for life or what, but I've gotten free updates forever. And it no, I think they say it on their website. You buy it once and you're done. Yeah, and and, and it. It works beautifully, and I use it every week for, for a similar thing to this, and I love, 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 love Chronosync. So I'll just throw that in there That's for That's a lot of love, Katie. Love Chronosync, yeah. But, but go ahead. We can answer his question. Yeah, I mean, you could do this with Hazel. And, and frankly, if you don't have Chronosync or Hazel, um, I would spend my first dollars on Hazel because I just find so many uses for this application. It It lets you do so much that just doesn't even seem possible otherwise. Um, but like, for instance, if he seeded that drive with all of his existing movie files, uh, one way to do this, if, if you get a new movie file and presumably it's going to have a date that's going to be, you know, a new date, um, 
and he's out on the road every month. So he comes back and he's uploading these. Um, the date added date is going to be within the last three weeks is going to be anything that he's added. He could just have Hazel say, take any file on this directory that was added within the last three weeks and copy it over. That's one way. Yeah. And doesn't, well, here, I would do it a little different. You could do that. But Hazel also has a move feature. So let's assume that Todd keeps all of his movies in a specific directory, in the movies directory of wherever that may be. So what Todd could do is is he could say, and, and Hazel won't move, Hazel's smart. It won't move it until it sees the destination directory. So Hazel, Todd could say any new file in the movies directory, and you could even put some criteria on it if you wanted to, move that file to the backup directory. And that would serve two purposes. Number one, it doesn't just duplicate it to the backup directory. It moves it. So it then removes it from your, I, I don't remember what he said. It was his road machine, a MacBook Pro of some kind. But it removes it from his MacBook Pro. So he's now no longer taking up that space on the MacBook Pro, assuming that's what he wants. Yeah, and, I didn't really understand that. I guess if, if he wants to keep it or not, I wasn't sure. So yeah, so those yeah, are, you, you can those use are the move. Or, you could use the move versus copy command. Yeah, I, I have a similar workflow um, that I was telling Todd about, and I'll mention it here just to, to kind of walk you through how that makes sense. I, I do this with uh, Mac Power User Shows. So I don't use iTunes to manage my podcasts. I use Downcast for that. But the only podcast that I subscribe to in iTunes is ours, David. I subscribe to Mac Power Users. And that is because iTunes will automatically, number one, just to make sure that it really does show up and come down every week. Um, and number two, because iTunes will download those podcasts to a specific directory on my Mac. And it's usually like inside your iTunes library, inside the podcast directory, inside a Mac power users folder. And so I have Hazel watch that directory. And then when a new show downloads there, I tell Hazel to move that show. And I think I might have it rename it. I don't remember. Um, I have Hazel move that show onto my Drobo. So I have, make sure that I have every final edited MP3 version of Mac power users backed up on my Drobo so that if something happened and we ever had to move all of our episodes or an episode ever went missing or deleted, I've got all of our Mac power users episodes all the way back to show zero on my Drobo. Yeah. And in case someday someone wants to listen to them or, or ritually burn them, we know now where the, the source media is. Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, what's next? OmniFocus. Uh, yeah, next is OmniFocus. We've got Aaron with an OmniFocus question. So let's hear from Aaron. It's kind of a productivity day, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's kind of our thing. That is kind of our thing. You're right. Hi, David and Katie. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Just had a question about OmniFocus. I've been using it for a ton of years, but I'm always trying to do it a little bit better. And one thing I've always struggled with is what to do with those one-step tasks or maybe one-and-a-half-step tasks. Do I create a project for it? Do I throw it into some you know, miscellaneous project? Uh, any guidance with how you handle those sort of one-off projects in OmniFocus would be very appreciated. Thanks. Shall I take this or shall you, Katie Floyd? Well, you take it because you're the OmniFocus guru, and, and I'll add in. Yeah, so I've got... Um I've got some projects set up that are not, um, they're nonlinear projects. Like uh, I've got one called gardening uh, general and gardening special. 
So I just planned my tomatoes and I got the ire of the entire East Coast of the continental United States when I did so. But so I've got like the gardening general, which is I've got some repeating tasks in there about when I fertilize and do certain things. I, I like to grow vegetables. Um, and then I've got gardening special where I'll throw one off tasks in there about I want to go buy some lattice work because tomatoes are already growing. Did you know that, Katie? They're they're just growing up like weeds. I can't believe it. It's it's eighty uh, degrees here. I'm in Florida. I, I'm, I'm uh, fine. That's true. That's true. Um, so I've got so that's what I do is I, I make some kind of general buckets for these things, and I've got those in my work life and my personal life, and um, not a lot of them, but I've got a few of them, and I put them in there. And the the trick is in OmniFocus when you set up the project, you can do a setting and. I'm using the beta right now, and I'm not sure where the setting is because I'm still figuring it all out. But when you – oh, if you just have a project open – give me one second here – and you go to the inspector, you can set the type of project. Hold on. Almost there. So you can have it where it's a single action type project, and that's what you would want for one of those buckets. Or you can do it parallel or sequential, which is kind of the the traditional GTD methods of doing things. But single action list is probably where you want to go with that, and you'll be just fine. I have a I have a lot of single action lists, or and it kind of shows up like as miscellaneous boxes in OmniFocus, and I, I have a couple of these because I have a lot of these types of projects. Um, you know, if I have a particular project that I'm doing around the house, like I'm thinking about redoing my laundry room, that's going to have a specific project in OmniFocus. But I have some general projects, like every three months I have to recharge the jumpstart battery in the car. That goes into a general maintenance project. I mean, that's one thing. I'm not going to make three separate projects for open trunk, pull a battery out of trunk plug battery into i mean that would just be ridiculous right yeah so you know so i have one task that repeats every three months you know recharge jumpstart battery and i uh, you know i think that it, i don't remember if that is stored in my auto my general auto category or if it's stored in my general home maintenance category but one of those and so i have a couple of general single action task lists for things like general auto maintenance general home maintenance you know things like that I kind of I think it's delightful that you have a jumpstart battery that you carry in your car at all times. I yeah, you don't. Why don't you? No. Well, it's just appropriate. It's appropriate that I don't have one. I mean, I don't have the uh, battery backup on my on my home equipment, so I shouldn't have one in my car either. I'm I'm this, putting a link in the show notes right now to my jumpstart battery on Amazon. It has saved my bacon more than once. This opens an entirely new category of email to me about something I'm doing wrong. Batteries and email. Okay. Yeah. How often do you um? How often do you need to use your jumpstart battery? If you have to use it once, it's paid for itself. I mean, I have an older car. I have a 1997 Toyota, and it is yeah, it is rock solid. I mean, I I love that car, and I will I will I will run it until it is no longer reliable. But when you when you have an older car, um, you know you have maintenance and things happen. And I had a battery that was that yeah was it wonky. And With a car that age, I would have one. I think that's smart. Yeah, well, but you don't have to necessarily have a really old car to have a bad battery. Um, yeah. You know, I I have left um, – sometimes when you have an old car, like the sensors don't work anymore. And, and sometimes the sensors on my lights that are supposed to automatically go off don't always turn my lights off. So sometimes my lights accidentally get left on and, you know, I have my, my batteries dead. So I would say I've probably used it once or twice a year the last couple of years. Okay. And it's it saved my bacon. I mean, because if I've got it, if, you know, I don't have a second car, you know, especially being single, I have to rely on myself. And so, you know, if I've got to be at court at 
9 a.m. and my battery's dead. I got to figure out how to jumpstart it myself. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. So I it just is haven't the, uh, had enough of a battery problem in, in the last few years to, uh, to justify it. Okay, but. But, but here's the best part of it, and I'm pulling into the show notes. It is a really big battery. So in addition to jumpstarting your car, it's got a um, – I don't know what the official name for this, but I always called it the cigarette adapter thing in the back You know that you plug oh. auto chargers in. Yeah. And so it's a really big battery. So I always charge this up. I make sure that it's charged because when we have bad weather, which happens here in Florida, um, this is a really big battery that I can charge – my um my USB devices off of. So I just stick my my car charger for my USB devices in the side of this and I can charge up iPhones, I can charge up batteries, I can charge up what I so I can charge other things up off this battery if I need to. Oh no see that makes sense to me. So if you you're losing your power a lot, you could just go out and grab it out of your trunk and you could charge your iPad for like a month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That I'm I'm sold. I'm gonna look at, into this. Yeah, it's uh, uh forty bucks. Oh, that's it's not even that much money. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. I just don't want to tell my wife about it now because um, Tom's got me worried. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> Be very, very careful. Yeah. Okay. What about text expander? We got some nice um, uh, comments on text expander. Yeah, I like this question about text expander. This well, but because because we could we could go off the rails on this. So can we should we maybe talk about our our next sponsor before we go here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so our, our next sponsor for this episode, and I'm so, I'm so glad because we've gotten so much positive feedback about this sponsor, um, are our good friends over at Tapes. And I can't tell you how many Mac Power users listeners have written to me about Tapes. And the best part is I've got Mac Power users listeners sending me Tapes. So let's talk about what they are. So Tapes are a really easy way to record and share screenshots on your Mac. So it's a, an application that you screencast. download. Screencast. Screencast. I'm sorry. You're right. Short screencast, up to three minutes each on your Mac. So you download this application. It sits in your menu bar, and then you can hit a hotkey. Uh, I think mine is Control-Shift-2. That might be the default one. I don't remember. And you can capture up to three minutes of your screen and voice at a time. And then you hit Done, and tapes will automatically upload that to their servers where it will store that information. And then it will copy a link to where that is on your clipboard. Um, If you miss the link for whatever up in the menu bar, it's got links to your last few recorded tapes. Um, All of your tapes are security uh, securely uploaded and they're accessible only by people who you share the URL with. They'll keep them indefinitely, although you can delete them at any time if you want. So if you feel like you need to show somebody something and you can get it done in three minutes or less, which Really, we have short attention spans, so you should be able to get it done in three minutes or less. Open up or hit the combination key, start recording a tape, and then you can send it to somebody. And I've been beta testing some apps for developers or filing bug reports with people. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to explain to somebody, well, when I click to this page, this button doesn't work unless you do this and turn around three times and then tap your heels and and then it all works. But you can explain that with a screencast so much easier than you can in text or even in screenshots. So... I mean, I can't, the, the positive response that I'll get from people when I send them a tape is be like, here, this is what's going on. See for yourself. This is how it works. Or you can even walk them through it in audio if you want to uh, and send them a link for it. They don't have to v- download anything. Anybody can watch these. Um, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. So you can record short video tutorials for your friends. I've had Mac Power users, listeners write me questions and say, well, hey, where did you find that setting about the keyboard shortcuts? I was like, okay, well, here you go. I just recorded my screen and said, you know, you go to system preferences. This is where you click, click right here. And this is, this is how you do it. So um, it great application. And, 
you, Mac Power users, listeners, can use tapes to send us cool stuff. I mean, I've gotten Hazel workflows. I've gotten Keyboard Maestro workflows. I've gotten all kinds of stuff. I think our listeners have really taken to tapes. Yeah, it just makes so much sense. And uh, you don't have to run a podcast and need this app. I mean, if you're the family geek, just showing your, your mom how to print it's just it just solves the problem. You just do it and you send her the link and then she can watch it on the web and do it. I I had to help somebody in the office learn how to OCR PDF files and she just could not get it and I wasn't there and I just sent her a tape and that was that was all that was required. So it's a great application. It's a great idea. I like it because there's very little overhead. You just make the tape. You already it already automatically uploads it. It puts the link in your clipboard already. You just prepare an email and put the link in and you're good to go. And uh, wow, it, it just it solves a great problem. I make really big screencasts for the books and stuff, and tapes isn't the right tool for that. But for all the little things, it's perfect. So you can find more information. You can download their app. You can find it at gettapes.com. Um, it's available for nine ninety nine, and it's in the Mac App Store, which means you download it once, and you've got it for all of your authorized machines to use. Uh, I'm sorry, use tapes dot com slash Mac and it's available in the Mac app store. So go visit them at usetapes.com slash Mac. Find more information. You can even see a little video on their site about how it works. And uh it's just become one of my favorite apps. And David, did you send this to Merlin? I'm a little worried about that. Um yeah, well you know it's crazy. You can't gift an app. Huh. So I actually Yeah, but I sent him some money and said go get this app. It's really worth it. Oh gosh. I'm a little terrified to see what he comes up with. Yeah, I'm sure he would make a fun tape. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, let's let's move on. Uh, we've got some comments about Text Expander that I thought were pretty useful. Yeah, let me let me pull that up. This is from Marvin. Hi guys, I have two questions about Text Expander snippets. Number one, how do you organize all your Text Expander snippets? Do you have a taxonomy or a naming standard to help you remember all the abbreviations? For example, do you start all email signatures with SIG or all to-dos with TD? What about people's names, company names, cities, URL versus software name, and so on? Do you have a system? And secondly, have you found a good way to translate the snippet delimiters from Mac to iOS? Starting shortcuts with a semicolon makes them too difficult to type on the iOS keyboard. Someone I heard switched to ZZ. What are some good options? Yeah, yeah. I, I go ahead, Katie. I was just going to say, I'm going to start asking everybody who comes on the show to do a workflow qu- this question. Okay. Maybe not. Maybe. Uh, well, I, I don't know. It's it's not that complicated. I, I used to use a period at the beginning of every snippet, and that became a problem when uh, Text Expander made its way to iOS, and all of a sudden I have to you know navigate through keyboards to get to my my. Uh, shortcut delimiter. Yeah, I delimiter. Used to, I used to use a semicolon. Same issue. So I just switched to X. So the letter X at the beginning of something leads to a uh, snippet. Like XDS gives me a date string, and uh, I use X almost exclusively. That uh, there are very few letter, very few words that I ever write that start with the letter X. Uh, I don't use two. I don't use ZZ because I don't want to have to type it twice. So I just type X, whatever it is, and it's just fine. I've never run into any conflicts with any X words. 
and uh, that sounded a little dirty, uh, but uh, either way, it's uh, it's great. So just put X at the beginning, and you're good. And in terms of organizing the snippets, I have an insane number of snippet groups. In fact, I'm in the middle of making a screencast for the new version 2.5 of the iOS Text Expander Touch. They just released it, and I'm making the screencast, and I'm looking at all my folders in the screencast, thinking this is kind of embarrassing. I have so many folders, but I. I find that it works for me. You know, like I've got symbols, folders, and I just, I've probably got 30 of them. So uh, use what works for you. Don't make it more, like anything, don't make it more complicated than you need it to be, but don't hesitate to add an additional folder if that makes sense. Now, did you have to, I am not aware, and maybe you know something I don't know, of how to change your delimiters, or did you have to go back just and manually do that? Um, Brett Terpstra, of, of course. Of course he did. Uh, created a tool to switch them, which I went and dug out and used at the time. And I'll see if I can find and put it in the link. Yeah. Because right. he's Brett. That makes, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. I'll go find Brett's tool because I have a few that I haven't, I haven't switched yet. Yeah. I, I originally used a semicolon. In fact, I still use a semicolon for most of mine just because I haven't bothered to switch them over and I've just dealt with the extra tap. But now that I know that Brett has a tool, I'll probably move over and use the tool. I, now, uh, in the chat room, JF makes the case, just keep it the semicolon. He says, look, it's already under your pinky. You don't have to move your finger. And, you know, he doesn't, he probably doesn't use as many snippets on iOS. Uh, so he's kept that. And I could see that, but it's not that hard to get my, my finger to the X either. Yeah. I've, I've got a couple of, I mean, I've got probably a dozen folders set up. You know, I try to, I try to organize my folders by big categories. I've got one for the podcast, one for the blog. One more for general productivity, one for work, you know, a couple for work, you know, and then I've got some of the autocorrect folders and typo folders and and things like that. But I think also what he was asking is, how do you name the actual snippets? Like, how do you remember the snippets? And I'll tell you, that's that's a problem sometimes because I, I'll know that I have a, a snippet for something and I won't remember what the snippet is. It's like, oh, was that? MPUG or was it GMPU or what, what was the snippet for whenever we invite a guest on the show? Okay. So I have a, I have a thing I do for this. First of all, uh, if you have text expander in your menu bar, there's a search bar there. So if you really don't know, you can just click up there and type in something from the snippet or the shortcut or anything, and it will find it for you. But what I always do is I think, well, what do I think it is? And I type that first. And if that doesn't fire off the snippet, I go find it in, in the search bar and then I open up Text Expander and I switch it to whatever it is that I thought it was. And that way it kind of reinforces for me. And very quickly I, I capture them. I had, you know, I wonder how much of my internal RAM is dedicated to remembering snippets because I have a lot of snippets. But they all just kind of, I don't even really think about what the letters are anymore with a lot of them. Just my fingers, it's like a muscle memory thing at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I've kind of gotten that way too. I have, let's see, 5,399 snippets. Now I will tell you a good chunk of those are autocorrect snippets because I've downloaded. And here's a tip if you haven't already. Um, Text Expander hosts a couple of snippet groups that you can download. So they have like tidbits autocorrect and a more general autocorrect. And that's that's probably the bulk of my snippets where it will autocorrect common misspellings. Yeah. So I guess if I took those out, I'd probably have significantly fewer. Well, either way, um, you just got to do what works for you at the end of the day. But 
but there's a there's a lot of ways to manage this stuff. I guess if you're going to be on iOS, I would I would definitely use a symbol that is not on the second screen to get started. Yeah. All right, Marvin. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Um, we've got some paperless feedback. There's a another popular topic. Um, and Heidi wrote in and talked to us about her receipt workflow, which I thought was very timely because I'm dealing with a lot of uh, Macworld receipts. And so here's Heidi. Hi, this is Heidi from Seattle. We had a neat scanner that was really on its last leg, so we went ahead and made the switch to the ScanSnap iX500, which we love. But at the same time, we switched to storing receipts in the neat software to Evernote, and it's just really been great. So I'm a long-term Evernote user, and what I did was, first of all, just set up a separate account for this that both my husband and I access. And what we found is the major advantage of using Evernote is the ability to email receipts to it, particularly since we do a lot of our purchasing online. So for items that will be delivered, we email it directly to a deliveries notebook, which is great since both my husband and I can then collectively see what is pending delivery. And then for other emailed receipts, I have a notebook for each month, and I set that month's notebook as the default in Evernote so that anything forward, forwarded to it via email goes directly to it. So this system has really simplified our workflow. It's really working great for us. And just wanted to say that I love your show and thanks for everything that uh, you both do. That's a really sane way of dealing with receipts. Yeah. Now, initially when she started talking about this, I thought that she meant Oh, we just we just have another notebook that we use for receipts. But no, she no. means they have a whole new account that they use for receipts. Yeah, and I've never thought of that before, but why not? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, you probably wouldn't want it to be your main account. I mean, I use Evernote Premium on my main account, but if you're just emailing receipts, it will probably work. And I think I think that mailing receipts to Ever mailing things in general to Evernote is overlooked because Evernote gives everybody whether you're a premium or a regular subscriber a special email address that comes with Evernote and figure out what that is. You can find it in your uh, preferences of Evernote, or you can find it on the Evernote website under the account settings and just save it in your address book under Evernote. And David, that's how we do the show notes is when we get, this is, that's how we prep the show is when we get feedback for the show that we want to cover. We usually either respond to the feedback and then BCC the Evernote address. And then um, to send that feedback to Evernote, um, or I just forward the emails to the Evernote address. And whatever the subject of the email is will become the title of the note in Evernote. And then if you want Evernote to automatically file that receipt or whatever it is, that document, whatever, in a specific notebook, you can, at the end of the, the subject line, add at the at symbol and then the name of the notebook. So um, we have a notebook called MPU Feedback. So we'll take, we'll forward uh, feedback that we want to cover in the feedback show to, uh, we'll, we'll type in the subject, whatever it is, and then uh, space at MPU feedback, and we'll email that to Evernote, and it will automatically show up in the MPU feedback notebook of Evernote, and because that's a shared notebook between the two of us, we both have access to it. It's brilliant. And and we had tried to do this many ways over the years and many different ways. And this was the way that really finally cracked it for us. I thought this was really great. Um, if you get an email from me and it says at 
MPU feedback in the subject line, that means you made the cut. You're you, in. You're in. And if it doesn't, yeah. don't worry. We may have just separately forwarded it to feedback because especially if you gave us an attachment, if we reply, it doesn't include the attachment. So sometimes we just forward them separately. Yeah. Okay. Uh, th- I thought that was good. We're running out of time, Katie Floyd. I know. Well, let's, let's talk about um, Ned asks, what do you do with the last little bits of paper in your life? He's He's gone primarily paperless. Um, thanks a lot to your book, David. And he just got an IX 500 from ScanSnap. Um, but how do you handle all those little bits of paper in your life? Like um, notes, uh, call notes, all of that, all those little things, you know, when you clear your desk and you're ready for action, you've got, you know, maybe post-it notes or um, notes from calls. What do you do? All those, yeah. he said all those little bits of paper bouncing around. Well, I mean, you could scan them. Is one thing you could do. It, it just depends on what their use is. I think I get that sometimes. I talked to someone at, at MacWorld uh, who I was I was writing something on a piece of paper to hand to him. And he's like, "Oh, Mister Paperless is writing on paper." Uh, you don't, you know, you use what works. Even though I'm a big fan of paperless, sometimes that's not the best solution. So I think you know the word paperless is sometimes overrated. So. If Ned has little pieces of paper that he's got something on that's important to him, that's fine. I mean, if it's a deed to your house, I'm not going to tell you to go shred it and scan it. Um, if it's something that's on your desk, like you have a phone call with somebody. I have, I guess, a variety of different workflows for this. I'm always carrying uh, note cards in my pocket. And if I'm out and about and somebody tells me something I want to remember, I pull out the note card and I write it on. I used to use the field notes for that, but I found that so often... Uh, a lot of times I'll make a diagram or something and hand it to somebody. So I was tearing a lot of pages out and I'm like, you know, I don't really, I think I give these away as much as I use them. So I got note cards instead. And when I get back in front of a Mac or an iOS device, I'll have the note card and I'll either, maybe I'll dictate a task into OmniFocus. Maybe I'll open NV Alt and add some notes from a telephone call uh, with a date stamp to NV Alt. I mean, it just kind of, the stuff goes into a variety of different places. And then I take my pen and I scratch out that line or that, that entry on the note card. And when the note card is full, I throw it in the trash. Uh, so that I think one way to deal with this is to kind of limit what types of paper you use. I'm not a fan of sticky notes uh, for personal reference items. Like if someone calls me and they give me a phone number, I don't write it on a sticky note. I pull out the note card and write it on there. I just have one place. Sticky notes I use if I'm handing a piece of paper with an instruction on it to someone at the office. It's got the instruction written on the sticky note, but I don't like have them stuck all around my office. That would make me completely insane. Um, but th- this is really kind of a um, a contextual question. It depends where you're at. Uh, so if you're away from a computer, write it on a note card. If you're sitting in front of a computer, why not just write the note right on your computer? Like we talk about on Clutter sometimes. It's an app that we like. It's... Um, uh, I believe, is it Daisy Disk that makes that? Yeah, okay, made same by guys. the same yeah. guys who made Daisy Disk, yeah. Yeah, so I've been using it for ages on my Mac, and it's got a notes field. So I can just take two fingers and swipe from the top of the screen and start typing notes from anywhere, which is pretty nice. Um, how about you? What do you do with this stuff? Um, I do a couple of different things. First off, I, I agree with you. Use the the tool that works for you. And when I am meeting with a client or I need to take more detailed notes, I'm going to use pen and paper. Um, I'm really, really tempted by the new LiveScribe 3 pen that we saw at Macworld. But Me too. Uh, I just, I've tried it once and it didn't work for me, but I'm really tempted. I really want to. But for now, I just write on a legal pad. 
And what I will either do, and sometimes my notes on legal pad either aren't very legible to anybody but me, or, or they, they, they kind of are, are haphazardly written. So what I'll do when the client leaves and before the end of the day, I'll go back and I'll take those notes and I'll put them into the computer. So I try at the end of the day to take all the paper that I've accumulated through the day, um, put them digital into the computer, um, you know, to, to make memos of my notes, or I'll dictate them and then my, my assistant will, will type them up and, and put them in and just get rid of that paper and get it into our electronic system. Or sometimes you just take the piece of paper and you run it through the scanner. You know, that works too. Um, I use day one, and you've talked a little bit about your com log, which is a note that you have open in uh, in OmniFolk or uh, NVALT, I think. I use day one um, more as a professional journal. And when I have little bits of information or things that I'm doing, I will pop open day one, and there's a keyboard shortcut. I think mine is Shift-Control-D. And if someone's giving me a phone number or if I'm taking notes from a, a telephone conversation or even to keep track of a time entry. So if I just did this, but I'm about to get sidetracked, I'll stop what I'm doing and, and just quit, hit the quick keyboard shortcut for day one and, and log my time real quick. And at the end of the day, I'll go through day one and I'll log through all that information that I need. So, so that's I, your note card, basically. That's my note card. So I try to log all of that information wherever I am in the method that works for me. But by the end of the day, I try to block off at least the last 30 minutes or maybe the last hour of my day to kind of do a capture and a review. Makes sense. Hey, there's some more stuff I want to talk about, but I want to do our last sponsor first. Um, so uh, I'd like to talk about our friends at Fujitsu. Uh, I got to see the Fujitsu people again this year at Macworld. They had a really great booth. And the one thing I noticed is their booth was packed like the entire show. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah, I had a hard time getting to their booth, honestly. Yeah, everybody wanted to get in. And uh, I'll tell a lot of people they had a good deal. So a lot of people were carrying around their scanners. And and frankly, I, I met a lot of our listeners that had upgraded to the Fujitsu scanners. And it's really great to see the listeners using them. I'm a huge fan. I'm looking at mine right now on my desk. I use it all the time. I also bought a second one at work. So I'm a big fan and a user. So uh, I'd like to talk about the, the premium scanner they have right now is the Fujitsu ScanSnap iX500. Uh, did you notice, Katie, when I talked to your mom, I, ta- I called it the snap scan whenever I talked to her? I noticed that. And um, by the way, you and the folks at Fujitsu have cost me like 600 bucks. Thank you very much. Oh, really? How so? Um, Mother's Day is coming up. Oh, she's, she wants the big one. And her 1300 is no longer adequate. So, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, uh, and this is why uh, Katie's mom needs the good one. Uh, the iX500 is full duplex, which means it scans both sides of the paper at once. Uh, it's got a 50-sheet feeder in there, so you can tear through just about anything in your workflow. It's USB 3, so when you plug in, the communication is very fast, and it scans 25 pages per minute. This thing just tears through paper. Uh, you can scan directly to mobile devices, so if you want to bypass the computer and scan an image to uh, PDF or J on your iOS or Android device, you can do that. It's also got a really cool paper feeding system. You know how sometimes scanners can grab two sheets at once? Well, the ScanSnap has got a solution for that where it pings it and it can separate when there's two pages. 
It also has a separation roller technology to minimize jams and multi-feeds. Um, they also have more scanning options. So you can, uh, there's a quick menu so you can productively send things wherever you want. Like earlier, uh, our listener could send it directly to Evernote if they want, uh, or you can save it to a folder or wherever your location is. It's got great software. It does the optical character recognition right on board and it's very fast. Um, and, and it just solves your problem. So you get one of these IX500s, you attach it to your Mac, and you're never going to have a problem with managing documents anymore. Um, the If you want something smaller, the S1300i, which Katie's mom has, is still a great scanner. It's a little cheaper. It does have a sheet feeder. It can do 12 pages per minute. And the nice thing about this is if you're low on space in your home office, you can stick it in a drawer when you're not using it. It's, it's, it's portable enough you can do that, or you can take it with you. I actually brought mine up to Macworld this year, brought my uh, S1300i with me, and I used it in my paperless session. And so I'm walking around Macworld carrying the scanner all day, and then I look and I said, you know, there's a Fujitsu booth here. I bet they would have loaned me one if I asked. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I probably that, That's just me. <laughs> and then uh, if you want something really small, the Magic Wand Scanner, I call it the S1100, is very portable. It works on USB power only. You just plug it into your Mac, Mac and it can scan through a page and all of these have the same great Fujitsu scan snap software. So you still get the OCR, you still get the file naming, you still get the various options you have, uh, all with any one of the scanners in this line. Um, I just think that they've really nailed it. They completely support the Mac community, not only with great hardware, but also with great software. And they've been a longtime sponsor of our show and we really appreciate it. So go check it out. Um, there's a website. It's easy.com slash SSMPU. That's ScanSnap Mac Power Users. So go there so they know you found about it from us. If not, and you do get one uh, from some other source, let them know on Twitter or something. Just get the word out to help us out. But also, uh, this will really solve your paperless problem. So go check out the ScanSnap. And, and thank you, Fujitsu, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. You know, Dave, we haven't gotten through our entire outline yet, but um, we've about run out of time. We've We've hit our hour and a half mark here, so we've got to get out of here. But um, why don't we close? Um, you had a, a good idea here. Why don't we close with? Um, you had a couple of picks that you wanted to to close with. I think. Yeah, I said two picks. Let's okay. just two picks. Both two of picks. us picked two things that were that we're using that we really like. And uh, my first one is something that I didn't expect to like. Uh, I've written for years at Max Sparky how I thought that. Um, Microsoft was blowing it with getting Office on the iPad. It just seemed to me like there's so many iPads out there, and people and the, you know, it says soft in the name, uh, so they would, should make this software for the Mac. Uh, they finally did it, and right before they released it, you know, all the rumors were flying around, and I said, I think that there's a battle going on at Microsoft that there's people that want to sell the Surface tablets that don't want Office on the iPad, and there's a group of people who like to make Office and they want to put Office on the iPad. And it seemed to me the inevitable conclusion was they would release it, but they would cripple it, so it wasn't really that great on the iPad. And the precedent for this was, uh, the office that they made for the iPhone, which wasn't very good. Uh, guess what? I, I used office, uh, cause I'm getting ready for trial as we're recording the show. So I was in a jam and I have the office downloaded on my iPad. It is really pretty good. And the Microsoft word in particular is very impressive. I, uh, I have to give kudos to Microsoft for really de delivering a great product to the iPad with the uh, Microsoft Word on the iPad. I haven't had enough time yet to play with Excel, and frankly, I probably will never spend that much time with PowerPoint, but the uh, 
they did a great job with Word. So uh, if you're, you have to be an Office 365 subscriber, so you're looking at like a hundred bucks a year. But if you're using it in your day job, or if this is something that you're really into, um, they did a good job with iPad. So kudos to them. Yeah, my first pick um, is something that I'd kind of known about, but I, I hadn't really looked into, and that is um, Appler. And that is Michael Johnston's app and Michael Johnston's of uh, the We Have Communicators podcast. And you know, he's just a, a guy who's been in our community for a long time. Good guy. And I ran into Michael at, at Macworld. And specifically, I think I ran into him at Cirque to Mac. And I, I knew that he had done Appler and I was talking to him a little bit about it. And I finally decided to sign up and you can sign up at getappler.com. And what it does is you optionally, although it works best, is if you log in with your iTunes credentials. Now, that freaked me out. Don't worry. Um, you're not actually giving this website or Michael, and he assured me of this and kind of explained to me how it works, your iTunes login information. They're just using it to pass a token, so nobody actually gets your username and password. Um, but with that, they can see all of the apps that you've bought, and you can share that with the Appler community, and you can say, yes, I recommend this app. No, I don't recommend this app. Uh, this app is so-so. And then you can pick your fate. These are my top apps for iPad my top apps for iPhone, and then you can comment and review apps. And then there's a commenting process that goes back and forth about that. If you don't want to give them your iTunes credentials, that's fine. You can just go in and manually tell them what apps you have. Or if you do, it'll say, hey, I know you've got these apps, which is kind of cool because I'm lazy about that. But I, I think we can, oh, you know, the, the iTunes um, model for finding and discovering and recommending apps at this point is, is really broken. If you just go into iTunes and and you look for apps it's going to be really difficult to find good apps that you want. Most of us learn about apps either by word of mouth, by our friends, or through podcasts or reviews or websites or other things like that. So um, what Appler tries to do is it tries to connect you with like-minded people, or you can follow your friends. You can connect via Facebook or Twitter or whatever and say, hey, Katie Floyd, I know that you like these apps. This person over here likes these apps, but they also like these apps too. You might like these apps or um, you know, Katie, you follow Dave Hamilton and Jeff Gamet and Dave Sparks. These are the apps that they like and recommend. You might like some of these apps as well. So it's a, a great app recommendation site. And uh, I've I've already spent some money because I've found additional apps that I like. I'm going to have to go sign up for it. Yeah, I haven't done that yet. Yeah. yeah. So I've got one more pick. Uh, and, you know, obsessing on laptop battery is one of my hobbies. And I found this application in the Mac App Store called Fruit Juice. Have you ever heard of this, Katie? Yeah, I use it. Oh, isn't it great? So so it's a menu bar application, and it gives you a lot more details on your battery. Um, so like I know, for instance, right now, my battery uh, is at 98% of its original capacity, and I've used uh, something like 300 full charge cycles of 1,000. So it gives you a lot of great details. But, you know, we also know that it makes sense to, like, exercise your battery a little bit. And I know that, you know, this is kind of a religious war, depending on who you talk to. But um, ideally, you don't want your battery maxed out at 100% every day. Um, Fruit Juice gives you a little timer and every day says, well, like today, ideally, you'll have it on battery for one hour and 47 minutes. So, and then it gives you a notification that say, okay, you've been off battery enough today. So like if you're using your Mac at your desk every day, you can just unplug it in the morning and wait until Fruit Juice gives you the notification that, okay, you've used the battery enough today to keep the battery kind of active. You can plug it back in and be done. And um, I've been using this now for about six months and I think it's a great little application. I've been meaning to write it up on Mac Sparky forever and just haven't got to it. So go check out Fruit Juice. 
Yeah, I've exchanged some emails with a developer about fruit juice, and um, I, I had some ideas I recommended to him, and he said, yeah, we kind of thought about that, and I like what you're thinking of, too, and can't talk about it because I think he might be planning on doing something with that in future releases, but uh, I like where these guys have their heads and, and where they're going. Um, the other app that I've been using quite a bit is Photo Magico from Boings. Uh, you've talked about this a little bit, so I won't go too much in detail, but my grandparents just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. And so you know what that means, all kind of big family gatherings, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, other kinds of events. You take all the family photos, especially the embarrassing ones, you get them scanned, um, and you make a slideshow and you set it to music. And usually that process takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. But Photo Magico allows you to take these photos put them together and just create beautiful slideshows, set them to music with the Ken Burns effect, zoom in and out of your slides, add transitions between them, um, you know, really coordinate and time your slides to the music. Uh, you know, it, it just, I, I probably spent less than an hour and a half or two hours, um, you know, making this, this 30 minute slideshow or so, cause it just worked on a loop. Um, and it was, it was the hit of their anniversary. So um, check it out. Photo Magico. Katie, we uh, we missed out. We had a bunch of extra feedback we still didn't get to. So I guess we'll have to get that in next month. We will. But I like the way this is going. So if you're out there and you've got something to uh, to share with us, please do it. Even just a little recording app on the iPhone is good enough. I think a lot of our listeners did that this show. And we want to get at least one listener in live on the next show. It's not going to be an extended interview, but maybe, you know, five or ten minutes on a cool trick. Please let us know. And uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking with us as we figured out this live show thing. Uh, yep. So, Katie, where where can you find us? Yeah, you can find links to everything we talked about in our show notes at uh, MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. You can send us feedback for this episode as well as those audio comments you can attach to feedback, dot, or feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Floyd. David is at Max Sparky. And the show is at MacPowerUsers. And uh, thank you to our sponsor, SaneBox, BusyMac slash BusyContacts now, uh, Tapes and Fujitsu. And we will see you all uh, very soon. <laughs>